wherever you are emotionally this morning, wherever you are spiritually this morning, wherever you are physically this morning, if you're just exhausted, you know, you can barely kind of keep your eyes open. Uh, if you have had nothing to do with God in the past 168 hours, that's a week. Uh, if you have had nothing to do with God in the last year and a half or 10 years or whatever, like God has a spot for you today. And so we're just super glad that you're here and really excited that you have chosen to come and worship with us. We're starting a brand new series, Bible Stories. We went with kind of this vintage feel uh, for you. And, uh, you know, it reminded us who grew up in church of Vacation Bible School. And it reminded us, you know, of like little kid stories that we learned when we were children. Like I remember being in church my whole life. And I remember being taught stuff like, you know, the story of David and Goliath, which is what we're talking about this morning, Noah's Ark, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and the Lions, then these kinds of things. We're going to talk about a couple of these for the rest of August. And, and there are these stories that are really famous. And one of the things that I have always wanted to do, I've never done it, but uh, I, I have looked for the last probably seven years in secular culture I have looked for biblical references. So the world that says there is no God, the world that says we don't believe in the Bible, the world that says we want nothing to do with your God, they still make references to things that can only be found in the Bible. It's really interesting. And, and, uh, and so when you, when you watch uh, a secular show or whatever and there's a big, it's, it's raining a lot, every now and then the character in the show will make a reference and say it's like Noah's flood all over again. And, and you're thinking that writer, whoever wrote this show, probably doesn't believe in God at all, but they've just referenced something from the Bible. And when I think of David and Goliath, by the way, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. When I think of David and Goliath, the, the secular reference that comes to mind for me is Rocky IV. And when I was about 10 years old, Rocky IV came out. Uh, we were in the height of the Cold War, you know, and, and my mom was taking my sister, who was seven at the time, to see uh, um, 101 Dalmatians. It was back in the theaters. And my mom said, you can go with us to watch 101 Dalmatians, or you can go watch Rocky IV with your dad. And it was the first time I did like a thing with my dad, you know, and I was like, I'm going to go watch this movie with my dad. And I... I came out as a 10-year-old having watched Rocky IV, Rocky Balboa, right? He defeats the Russian at the end of the movie, all this kind of stuff. Great. And I was super excited, super pumped. There's a line in the movie when Rocky is about to fight with Ivan Drago where the announcer says it's the true case of David and Goliath. And it kind of ticks me off. That line ticks me off every time I hear it because I'm like, no, no, no. David and Goliath is the true case of David and Goliath. Uh, this is... This is something else, right? And, uh, and, and so, plus, we had spent 45 minutes watching Rocky Train, so we knew he was going to win. But, uh, but when, when I think about David and Goliath, um, and having grown up in church and been in church for 45 years and been preaching more than half of that now, been preaching for 25 years, uh, we, we come into a lot of places with David and Goliath. We come into a lot of stories. And so if you're not familiar with it, don't worry. I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, and, and then we're going to kind of digest it. And I hope, um, I hope that it will be fresh for you. I hope that it will be encouraging for you. Uh, but for some of you, I kind of just hope that you're like, oh, I already knew all that. And that will be great. And that's okay to be reminded sometimes of these things, okay? So here's what we have on tap today. If you're a note taker and you keep track of these things, here's our theology this week. Super simple. God keeps his promises. That's our theology this week. God keeps his promises, Okay. 
Our application this week is we can trust God's word. Now, I I don't just mean the Bible, although I do mean that. I, I mean that whatever God has said in the entire history of time, whatever God has said, we can trust. Okay, so Abraham, for example, didn't have a Bible to read, but what God spoke to Abraham was still true and still trustworthy. So we can trust God's word. And then our prayer today is this, God, help us to rest in your unchanging word. Help us to rest in your unchanging word. So let's, let's start with this. God keeps his promises. Now, if I were to read through this entire chapter of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, that would take us uh, a, a big chunk of our time this morning. And so I'm going to tell you the story. And in all fairness, I'll probably tell it to you longer than if I had just read it. Uh, but I love this story. Okay. And so David has, is the youngest of eight sons. And David has just been anointed king. So at this time in the nation of Israel, Israel is the nation of God's people. At this time in the nation of Israel, there is the first king ever named King Saul. And the thing that was dynamic about Saul is it says that he was head and and shoulders taller than everybody else. So like you can imagine if, if we took kind of the tallest among us and then there was a dude who was with us who was just head and shoulders taller than that, right? Like, it's a big guy. He was, he was the king that the people wanted. Back in 1 Kings, sorry, back in 1 Samuel, the people had said, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And this really ticked off, uh, this really ticked off Samuel. And he said to God, he goes, the people have rejected me. And God goes, no, 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 they haven't rejected you, Samuel. God said, the people have rejected me as being their king. To this point, God had been the king of Israel. And now Israel says, we want to look like everybody else. We want to be just like everybody else. We're not satisfied with God being our king. We want a human flesh and blood king. And so they said, give us a king. And so God gave them the king that they wanted. He gave them a guy who looked like a king. He was big. He was imposing. He had an impressive kind of stature. So he gave them the king that they wanted. The problem was that the king that the people wanted was not a godly guy. Saul was not a godly guy. And what happens is... That the spirit of God that had been on King Saul to kind of lead him and guide him is now gone. And King Saul is living wickedly and making wicked choices. And in the previous chapter, God has already anointed David to be the next king. Okay? David has already been anointed to be king. Saul doesn't know that yet. All right? If he had, he would have tried to kill David. He'll try to kill David later, but he does, he's not yet trying to kill David. Okay? And so David is this young shepherd boy. We don't know how old he is. It's estimated uh, that he is somewhere at this point in his late teens. Uh, and so David is, is a young teenager, perhaps, or, or maybe late teens, early 20s. But he's a young man, and he is not, he, he's out guarding the sheep. And his brothers are at war with King Saul and the army. And here's what war looks like at this point. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17. The bad guys in our story are the Philistines. And the Philistines have been at war with the Israelites at this point for about 440 years. Okay? For about 440 years, the Israelites and the Philistines have been at war. And they, because their lands border each other. And so the Philistine cities, they've been going into the Israelite cities and like ransacking the Israelite cities, and the Israelites have been going into the Philistine cities and ransacking the Philistines. This has been going on for over 400 years, this tension, okay? And finally, the Philistine army shows up, and they're standing in this valley, and they say, look, we'll send out one of our guys to fight one of your guys so that we don't have 400 years of fighting. 
Let's just do it this way. We'll send out one guy to fight, and you send out one guy to fight. Whoever's side wins is the winner, and you become the servants of the other. So it eliminates bloodshed, a lot of bloodshed, right? One guy, theoretically, is going to die. And so they send out Goliath, who is this Philistine warrior, and the Bible says he's been a warrior since his youth. Now, the Bible says that he was six cubits in a span, which would make him nine foot, nine inches tall. Okay, the oldest manuscripts, I just have to say this, I don't have to say this, but this is a monkey wrench I'm going to throw in there. The oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament say that he was four cubits in a span, which would make him six, nine, which is still really tall. Okay, so that would be about how tall I am right now. Okay, and so, but he's a warrior since his youth. He's been a warrior since his youth. He's been a fighter since his youth. He's been a trained soldier since his youth. And whether he's 6'9 or 9'9, the point is no one wants to fight him. The Israelite army stands on the other side of the valley and no one will go out to fight him. None. And so for 40 days in a row, he steps forward. And he curses the Israelites and their God. And he says, send a guy to fight me. And it's on the 40th day that David shows up. His dad had sent him with some bread and some goat cheese. Maybe they were going to make a pizza or something. So his dad had sent him with some bread and goat cheese to go visit the brothers. And he gets there and he sees this guy step out and curse the armies of God. And he drops off all the goods and he goes, well, who's going to do something about this? And they're like, well, you know. We don't know, but whoever defeats him, his dad won't have to ever pay taxes again, and the winner gets to marry the king's daughter. So David goes to another guy. He goes, what's going to happen to the guy who defeats this guy? And they're like, well, he doesn't have to pay taxes anymore, and he gets to marry the king's daughter. And so he's asking the same question around, and King Saul hears of it and brings David to him. And David says, hey, you don't need to worry about this guy. I'll go take care of him. And he says, I, I need you to know that like, I, I've, taken over, I've taken care of my father's sheep since I was a boy. And he goes, when a lion or a bear comes to try to take one of those sheep, he goes, God gives me victory over the lion or the bear. He goes, I've grabbed the lion by the beard and I've smote it. You know, it was like smote is a fancy way, you know, the old King James version, right? He, we would just say killed it, right? So he kills the lion, right? And he's like, this, this giant, this guy, he won't be, he's not any worse than a bear or a lion. And Saul is looking at this young man who's considerably shorter than he is. He's the king. He's looking at this young man, and he goes, good, okay, you can do it. Like, I think Saul at this point is just ready to be done with the situation. It's been 40 days. And so Saul says, here's my armor, and he puts it on David, and it doesn't fit David because what do we know about Saul? He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and what do we know about David? He's a young man. And David goes, I, I can't go in this armor. It doesn't, I haven't tested it yet. I, I'm not... I'm not good at it. And so he takes the armor off, and the story that we know, right, from the Bible here in 1 Samuel 17 is that David has a slingshot. Don't think like rubber band type slingshot. Think a pouch like this where he lets it go, right? And he goes to a river, and he finds five smooth rocks. I don't know if he plans on missing. Uh, it, is, it is speculated that, David, that Goliath has four brothers from a later text, so maybe David knows that. I don't know, but he's got, he's got five rocks in his pouch, right? And he goes out to face Goliath, and Goliath is offended that after 40 days, instead of having to face a warrior, he's facing a boy. And he goes, am I just a dog that you send a boy out to fight me with sticks? And he goes, I'm going to give your bodies 
to the beast today. And David goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, you're coming against our God. And he goes, and I'm going to give your bodies to the beast today and the birds of the air today. Goliath's spearhead weighed 15 pounds. His spearhead. I, I'm just imagining that spear being hurled at you, a 15-pound spearhead hitting you in the chest. You're pro- like, that's probably not an ICU visit. That's probably like you're done, you know? And here's Goliath. By the way, the reason I think he's probably 6'9 and not 9'9 is because later David is going to use Goliath's sword in battle. And uh, anyway, I have some thoughts on it, but we can talk about that another time. So, so David goes out against Goliath. Goliath has his sword, has his shield. David has a rock, flings the rock into Goliath's head. It sinks into his head. We don't know if that's what killed him or what happens next is what kills him, but Goliath falls down. David goes over, takes the sword off Goliath, and beheads Goliath. And the Philistines run away. And all the people are rejoicing, and the army of the Israelites begins to make their way back to Jerusalem in this huge procession, and all the people are hearing about it. This is the one dude that David has killed, and all the people hear about it, and all the women come along behind the army and begin to sing a song saying, Saul, which is the king, Saul has slain thousands, and David, ten thousands. And now Saul wants to kill David. Why? Because David, who killed one giant, has stolen Saul's thunder. And David says, if the people love him this much, what more could he have but the kingdom? And from that day forward, Saul looked for ways to put David to death. We know, because we read chapter 16, we know that God is already planning on making David king. Saul just figured it out. And he's like, man, I'm going to kill that guy. And, of course, David does become king. There's a lot that happens in the intermediary, and if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that more on Wednesday night. But here's what I want us to think about. Typically, when this story is taught, those are the basic facts of the story. Typically, when this story is taught, here's the application part. Now, hold on. I'm not into the application part yet, but typically when this is taught. Because I told you our theology is God keeps his promises. Typically, when this is taught, the, the rest of the sermon goes like this. What giant are you facing today in your life? Do you have a friend who's struggling with COVID right now? Do you have a loved one who just lost their job? Do you have some sort of sickness? You've just been diagnosed with cancer. You're going through a divorce. What's the giant you're facing in your life? And then the rest of the time, the pastor says, you can overcome your giant because David did. That is not good teaching from this text. It's not what the text means. First of all, it wasn't David that destroyed Goliath. It was God. He just used David. Okay? Goliath was not opposing David. Goliath was opposing God. And because Goliath was opposing God, God dealt with Goliath. The reason that God used David is because God wanted to get the credit. It's the same reason in the book of uh, Judges, Gideon had an army of 32,000, and God said, your army is way too big. If you get victory with 32,000 people, this is a story from the book of Judges, Gideon was going to go fight 135,000 people with 32,000 people. That means every Israelite soldier has to kill five of the bad guys. Right? That's not great odds. But then God goes, you have way too many people. 
for me to give the army into your hand. You have way too many people. If I give the army into your hand, you're going to take credit for it. So God says, tell everybody who's scared to go home. And 22,000 go home. Now Gideon has an army of 10,000. 10,000 to 135. Now you've each got to kill 13 and a half. I don't know how you kill half a person. You could bring them halfway there. Tell a guy, have you gotten your half yet? You can take him out, you know, whatever. But like the odds are now really stacked against you. Okay. And then God goes, you still have too many people. I want to get the credit for this. I want to get the glory for this. Take them down to the water and have them drink from the river. And everybody, everybody who laps the water like a dog, instead of the people who bring the water to their mouth, everyone who laps the water to their, the, laps their, so like, there, there's this, anyway, 9,700 people get sent home, and now Gideon has an army of 300 people. And God goes, this will be good. 300 into 135,000 means, I forget the math, but it's something like you're killing like, you know, 27 people each or something like that, Right? It's not in your favor, but it wasn't supposed to be. When God sent Joshua, by the way, they win because God got the victory over his, over his, God's enemy, not Gideon's enemy. When God sent Joshua into Jericho and they walked around the walls of the cities, this fortified city with an army inside, God's plan, here's the Israelite army, 1.6 million people attacking a city of about 30,000 with a wall all around it. And God goes, here's what I want you to do, Joshua. Walk around the city once on day one. Walk around the city once on day two. Do that for six days. On day seven, walk around the city seven times and then yell. That's the entire battle plan. Walk around the city six times for six days. And on the seventh day, walk around it seven times and then shout. And when they do, the walls fall down. Why? Because God wanted to get the credit. Why was Jesus a guy that the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he had no stately form, he had no majesty, there wasn't anything fancy about Jesus so that the people would look at Jesus and go, wow, that guy's really a king. Why? Because everything that God has done, everything that he's done, he's done to magnify his glory and his power. He saved the world with a man who was born to a carpenter. And so what God is doing here... What God is doing with David and Goliath isn't encouraging us and saying, you can beat your giant. That's not what he's doing. What God is doing here is keeping his promise, keeping his word. Let me give you a couple of things. You don't have to remember all of this, but have you ever heard the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah? Have you ever heard that at any point? If you haven't, that's okay. It's a reference to Jesus. It actually only occurs once in the scripture. But the lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference to Jesus. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, okay? And so uh, I'm, I'm a Dalglish. Dalglish is Scottish. Uh, I'm Scottish French. Um, you know, like I have different people or whatever, right? But like my mom's entire side of the family is German. So we all kind of understand lineage and history and stuff like that, right? Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He's an Israelite, but he's from the tribe of Judah. King Saul, King Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So King Saul is king from the tribe of Benjamin, but 500 years before David, 500 years before Saul, God had already said that the promised one, the savior, the redeemer would come through the line of Judah and that he would sit on the throne and that he would be king forever. God had already promised an eternal savior that would come through the line of Judah. But, but the king, King Saul, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So how does that work? God has to remove Benjamin and put Judah on the throne. 
so that the Savior can come from the line of the kings. Remember, Saul wasn't the king God wanted. Saul was the king the people wanted. David was the king God wanted. God had made a promise that he would put a king over his people that would bring the Savior eventually, that through the line of the king, the Savior would come, that through the line of the king, peace would be brought to the nations, that through the line of the king, salvation would come. God had made a promise 500 years before David that the line of Judah would redeem the world, that Christ who came... So I realize just now that this could be a little confusing. I said the lion, right, of the tribe of Judah... And then now I'm saying the line, as in the ancestry of Judah. And you could think, man, that guy has a really West Texas twang. You know, he keeps saying the line of Judah. <laughs> That's like Alabama, right? <laughs> you know, Christy's laughing because she knows, right? That's Alabama. How, how do you say how do you say lion in Alabama? Line, <laughs> you know? There's a line in the yard. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, what's what was uh, Jerry Clower? Anybody? Anybody, Jerry Clower? Yeah, a few of you. There's a line in the yard. So I, so I will now, instead of saying the line of Judah, I will say the ancestry of Judah so that we can be more clear and we're not saying the lion and the line. So the ancestry of Judah, God had already promised that through the ancestry of Judah would come the Savior, would come the Redeemer, that he would lead all of Israel and then ultimately all of the world to salvation. That's Jesus. Jesus is from the ancestry of Judah. Now, check this out. This is super cool. The people have their first king in King Saul. But the moment that David slays Goliath, that moment, where does the affection of the people turn? It turns to David. Why? Because God needed David to be on the throne. Because David is a picture of Christ. By the way, in the, in the book of Ezekiel, it's a prophetic book. It's hundreds of years after David has already died. The prophetic book of Ezekiel, speaking of Christ's second coming, not his first coming, speaking of Christ's second coming says, and then God will set his son David on the throne. Not meaning earthly David, but meaning Jesus so the Bible says that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the descendant of David. Jesus is the ancestor of David. And just like David brought unity to Israel, Christ, the descendant of David, would bring unity to the world. The reason that Goliath was defeated, and not just defeated, but defeated by David, is so that God could show his power, not David's power, his power, so that God could put his man, David, on the throne, so that God could make a way for Jesus, the Savior, the the reason that God slew Goliath through David is so that the, the way would be paved for the Savior of the world. Can I just say something to you? That is a better meaning than you're going to get over your joblessness. That is a much better meaning than you're going to get through the divorce. That's a much better meaning than you'll be able to beat the suffering and the sickness. Because listen, if we beat this sickness, great, but eventually something's going to kill me, right? Eventually something brings me to my death, right? But if my faith is in Christ and my confidence is in Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, 
who, who reigns upon the throne forever, who unites the world under the head of God. If my faith is in Jesus, then me closing my eyes in death is really just the beginning because then I open them in glory and I'm face to face with God. So listen to me. If I can overcome poverty, fantastic. If I can overcome sickness, great. If I can help you get a job because we're going to beat that, fantastic. But if I give you all of that but don't give you Jesus, then you die and still go to hell with bank accounts full of money, with a body that was healthy until yesterday. You know what I mean? This story isn't about us beating our giants because Goliath was not... Wow, I just spit a lot right there. Because Goliath... I'm getting excited. I forgot to swallow. Because Goliath is not our giant. Goliath is not our giant. This is what God has done. Why? This is what God has done so that God can pave the way for the Savior of mankind. Here's what's really cool. In the previous chapter, we don't, and we don't know how long this was, but we don't know what the time frame was. Maybe it's been a year, maybe it's been five years, we don't know. In the previous chapter, the Spirit of God has moved off of Saul and has rested on David, and then Saul starts being tormented by evil spirits from the Lord. Now listen, okay? We don't know how the evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting Saul. We don't know what that manifests like, what that looks like. Some of you are going, whoa, 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 whoa. An evil spirit from the Lord? Come and talk to me about it Wednesday. If you can't be there Wednesday, let's talk about it this morning when we're done with class, okay? Right? So, like, it's okay. We can discuss that. But it does happen. And whatever it is that's happening in Saul's body, something changes when he's being when this spirit from the Lord, this harmful spirit from the Lord is on him, something happens and he needs relief from it. The Bible never tells us what it is that is happening to, to King Saul. But he says, I need somebody to play some music for me to soothe me. And there's a guy who goes, hey, I saw a young man named David who plays the harp really beautifully. Want me to get him? And he says, yes. And so David is splitting his time between living at home with his dad and taking care of the sheep and living in the palace of King Saul, playing the harp. For, the, for King Saul. Now, King Saul goes out to war, so David goes back home. Right? Are you with me? King Saul goes to war in chapter 17, so David goes back home to take care of his dad's sheep. All right? David already knows Saul. Saul already knows David. David has already been around the king. David has already seen the workings of the kingdom. See, God is preparing David to be king already. He's been working for the king. And then David shows up and he goes, what's going to be done about this Philistine, this giant over here? And they tell him, and David goes, and he ends up, as we've already said, slaying Goliath. And here's what's interesting. I find it peculiar. Saul says, who is that young man? And you wonder, why in the world is he saying, who is that young man? David has already been with him. And maybe it's as simple as they didn't have glasses and Saul's getting old. And he's like, who is that guy? You know, maybe it's that, right? You know, he's squinting, like looking across there. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe he just can't tell from a distance. Maybe it's more spiritual. Whatever it is, we don't know. Maybe it's because every time he's encountered David before, the evil spirit's been on Saul. So maybe he's not aware. We don't know. So don't guess. We just don't know. But he doesn't recognize David, who presumably he should recognize. And so God had been preparing David to be king. And now as they're marching back to Jerusalem, all the people are going, Saul has slain thousands, but David ten thousands. And the whole nation turns their heart to David. 
not because David's so good or so kind or so gracious, but because God has picked David as his king who would be a forerunner and a foreshadow of the king who would rule over everyone, that is Jesus. The life of David and the kingship of David mimics the kingship of Christ. We can talk more about that. In fact, I would love, I would salivate. I won't spit on you. I'll wear my mask. I would salivate to talk over that a little bit more on Wednesday night, how the the kingship of David foreshadows the kingship of Christ. But here, right, so here's our theology. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. What was the promise that he had made? That the king would come from the line of Judah. Sorry, the king would come from the ancestry of Judah right? That the king would eventually reign forever. This was the promise of God, that the nation of Israel would not be defeated, would not be undone, wouldn't be brought to nothing because he was going to bring a savior through their line. So God has made all these promises to Israel, not because they're good, not because they're righteous, not because they're more numerous than all the other people. He made this promise because God said, I have decided for you to be my people. I have decided that through you, the savior will come for the whole world. And then God, because those are the promises he has made, is bringing it to pass. So here's the application. We can trust God's word. We can trust God's word. We can trust that what God has said he will do, he will do. Every single promise that God has ever made in the Bible, he has already brought to completion, save one category. There's one category of promises that God has not brought to fulfillment yet, and that is the return of Christ and the kingdom of heaven being established. But every other promise that God has ever made, he's done already. Every other promise that he has, listen, 400, 500 years before Judah was even a thought to sit on the throne, he's already said Judah will sit on the throne. Um, 350 years before this happened, a a prophet came and he said that, that, I see one, but not near. I see one coming whose scepter will never end, who will rule the nations. There were already prophecies of Christ. There was already a prophecy of Judah. There was already a prophecy of all of this coming, and then God brought it to pass. The people say, we want a king. And God goes, fine, I'll give you a king that you think you want. Here's Saul. And it doesn't go well for them. And God goes, my turn. Now I'll give you the king that you need. And he gives them David. And David, through the line of David, comes Jesus, the king and the ruler of the world. Everything that God, like, we think sometimes that God is reactionary. And I guess that there are some moments in the scripture where he is, where a circumstance arises and God reacts to it. But stuff like David and Goliath isn't reactionary. Stuff like David and Goliath is part of the whole story bringing us to Jesus. It's part of the narrative working its way to the end of Christ. This isn't, this isn't you can overcome your obstacle story. This is God is making the way for the Savior story. And listen to me. We can actually look at the Bible, and I believe it, I trust it, I rely on it. We can look at the Bible. We we know that these writings from the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can see that they're thousands of years apart, hundreds of years apart. We can see that through history. It's it's written out for us, and we can see that what God has said he would do here, sorry, you're looking at the timeline, what God has said he would do here, he does here. Every single thing that God has declared he will do, he's done. So hear me say this. 
When God says that those who have put faith in Jesus, he declares righteous. When God says that one day Christ will come back and he will examine all the hearts of mankind and that those who know him by faith will enter into glory and those who do not know him or have rejected him will enter into the lake of fire. When he says those things, we can trust him on those things. And rather than being fearful or overwhelmed with trepidation, we can say that because I have put faith in Jesus, I am righteous before God. And when Christ returns, not if, but when he returns, I will stand before God righteous and without blame in his kingdom and glory forever. And people go, how do you know? How can you trust it? Because every single other thing he's ever said he would do, he's done. David and Goliath is this rich, beautiful story about God protecting the nation of Israel, keeping them in in a bubble for a little bit longer. They would go back and forth out of that protection. But every single thing that God is doing here with David and Goliath, making David not just, David hasn't just been trained as a king by being around the king now. David is now already being looked at by the nation as a king before he ever became king so that the lineage of Christ could be set up, so that the Savior of the world could be introduced, so that redemption could be brought to mankind. That's what's going on here. It is bigger than us. It is more beautiful than us. And I stand before you today with 100% confidence, 100% confidence, with no doubt in my mind, that if this is our last day, and I won't make it quite that morbid, but if this is my last day on the planet, then while all you guys get to deal with all the corona stuff and all the masks and all that tomorrow, I will be in glory. But even if I am alive until the day Christ returns, hear me say this, there will be a moment, because God has said there will be, and because we can trust him at his word, and God keeps his promises, and we can trust his word, there will be a moment when Christ Jesus breaks through the sky, And all eyes behold him. And those who have put their faith in him will be brought into the kingdom of God forever. There is a point in history, in time, that we are coming to where every eye will see Jesus and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess his name. And you ask me, how do I know? Because of stuff like David and Goliath. Because God is working his purpose in ways that we don't often see or understand to bring about the things that he has already declared he would do. Jesus is coming. Guarantee it. Don't ask me when. I have no clue. And anybody who tells you they have a clue is a fool because the Bible says we don't know. He's coming, though. Ryan, can you be sure? Yes. Absolutely. How can you be sure? Because of stuff like David and Goliath. David and Goliath, not a story about me overcoming my giant, not a story about me overcoming my trials. It's a story about God working all things to his purpose, for his glory, for his kingdom, for eternity. And he's continuing to do that. So here's our prayer today. God, help us to rest in your unchanging word. 
Help us to rest. Think of that word rest as literally rest, like taking the reprieve. Okay, God, I'm resting in you. I'm finding my rest in you. Think of it as finding your foundation in, your comfort in, your peace in. I believe, Lord God, that what you have said is true and all of my confidence is in that. If all of my bank accounts go to zero tomorrow, if the house burns down tomorrow, if the tornado next year comes here and it hits the church and only the church if everything that could go wrong in my life goes wrong when all the medical bills for my surgery and his leg getting blown up on the fourth of july roll in and the money like when all of that happens who cares because my confidence is in the promise of god that declares me righteous through christ and through faith in him and one day christ is coming back that's where all of my rest is that's where all of my hope is that's where all of my peace is I get it. I get it. In this life, in this world, it is easy for our minds to become clouded with our jobs and our paycheck and our health and what we have and what we don't have and who we've lost. But hear me say this. The promise of God is unchanging. His word cannot be broken. And Jesus is coming. And let that be the thing that strengthens you. He brought David to be a king so that he could bring Jesus into play. And he put all of that into place. 400, 500 years before David, he foreshadowed it. In David, 500 years later, Jesus comes. He is making these plays that is moving us towards Christ. He is doing these things to strengthen us in Jesus. So take a moment, if you would, and here's our prayer. God, help us to rest in your unchanging word. Take a moment and say, God, help me to believe your promises. Help me to believe that you are good and help me to put my trust and my rest in you. Just take a moment to do that, please. Lord God, I thank you for stories in the Bible like David and Goliath. Not because it promises me that I can beat anything that comes into my path, because God, I know that that doesn't always happen. Jesus was still crucified. Peter was still crucified. Paul was still beheaded. Plenty of Christians have gone hungry. Plenty of believers and people of faith have been martyred. Plenty of people who know you have lost loved ones. I know that this text, Lord God, is not about us being our giant. But it's about you, Lord God. It's about you bringing glory to your name. It's about you making your name known. It's about you putting into effect the kingdom through whom Christ would come. This is about Jesus. 
as everything else in our life should be. And God, every single thing that you have ever declared, you've done. And so we trust that when you declare that Jesus will come back one day, it shall be done. And whether it's in this moment before I finish this prayer, or Lord, in the next moment, or a million moments from now, we, with full confidence, rest in your unchanging word. That what you have declared to be true is true, whether we understand it or not. But because of your authority and your power and your grace and your beauty and your, your richness, there is nothing in you, God, that is false. And so we thank you for Jesus who came from the line of David. We thank you for Jesus who is the lamb that was slain. We thank you for Jesus who is the lion of the tribe of Judah who sits upon the throne forever and ever, whose kingdom never has an end, who rules over his people with mercy and grace and forgiveness. We thank you for that king. And we thank you that David and Goliath is just a piece of that story. And God, as we go out from this place today, some of us heavy-hearted and laden with worries of the world, I pray, God, that you would allow us to feel rest and confidence and peace in who you are and what you've done. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.